Welcome to Mission 150, the podcast that tells stories from 150 years of Seventh-day Adventist mission to the world. To find out more about the mission of the Adventist Church today, go to adventismission.org. That's adventismission.org. Thanks so much for joining us again on Mission 150. I'm David Trim. I'm Director of the Office of Archive Statistics and Research at the Seventh-day Adventist Church World Headquarters. And I am Sam Nevis, the Associate Director of Communication. Today we have Filvia Klein with us. Hi. Hey. <laughs> Filvia, you work with Adventist Mission, and we have some questions for you because the project that you are focused on is called Vivid Faith, and it's focused on expanding the number of missionaries that we have all over the world. That's and, correct. And today we're going to talk about that because we've been discussing mission and in the Adventist Church for 150 years. And we've talked about the past today. We'll go right to the cutting edge of mission. Filvia, first of all, what is Vivid Faith? It's an online recruiting tool. So it's just like any software or app you could use. But what makes it exciting is that, that it's a recruiting tool that connects people called to serve with mission-focused opportunities. So it's a product created by GC Secretariat and we um, so that's bring the people secret- together. That's the central body here at the World Church headquarters, that's- for those who don't know. Yes, that's correct. And so it's a tool specifically to connect people called to serve with mission-focused service opportunities anywhere in the world. We're going to talk more about that, but before we do, Filvia, you have an interesting and international background involving India. Tell us about where you were born, your childhood, and how you came to live in the United States. Um, yeah, I was born on a mission campus in India and uh, in the 60s. So it was a typical mission campus where there were many missionaries from many parts of the world. And there were um, people serving there from many parts of India. So English was the language spoken in that little campus. And I began to look at missionaries who came there to change our little world. And then when as a teenager, my parents went to Andrews to study. And so to Andrews University. Andrews University. And so my brother and I tagged along and I did part of my middle school and high school there. Went back to India for college and graduate studies and then moved back to the U.S. Right. So kind of both worlds, India and the U.S. And when I was little growing up, my dad, uh, he was on a committee. I think it was something to do with Biblical Research Institute, I remember. So I always grew up with M&Ms and Avon. So that was my <laughs> part of the U.S. Every, every year, you know, he'd bring back some tastes and flavors of the U.S. And then I grew up in India, very bicultural, because most of my family was already in the U.S. by then. Right. And your father later returned to the United States, right? Yes. Uh, he, was, uh, he was an international service employee, ISE now they're called. Uh, the church called him to serve at the General Conference Ministerial Department right. in 1990, I think. By then, I had already moved here from Right, and he later worked in the Education Department for a number of years. Yes, correct. John Fowler was his name. Some of our listeners or viewers might uh, even remember his name. And so he was actually a missionary from India to the United States. Yes. Yes, he was. I, I see the what you're doing there. That's very interesting. <laughs> well, and just to uh, to add to that, actually, Sam and I are both missionaries to the United States because we are also called from Britain, um, both to work here. And so, 
uh, it's just a reminder that these days missionaries don't just go from America and Europe to the pagan world, as they or the heathen world, as our ancestors used to used to call it. Uh, today, missionaries g- come from everywhere and go to everywhere. Um, all three of us get to travel quite a lot for our for our work, and I think probably you, like me, have met missionaries from Brazil and the Philippines, particularly, uh, and Mexico, working in different parts of the world. Of course, to be a missionary from to the United States is to have a particularly easy uh, time of it compared with some parts of the world, and yet actually it's still a sacrifice because we've had to give up our homelands and, and not seeing our families. And so your, your father did that, but he actually, by the time he moved here, you had, had moved here as well. Yes. So, right. So. All right. So let's let's jump into into your experience as a missionary. You had a oh. some experience as a missionary, right? <laughs> well, I didn't want to go as a missionary, so let's start with that. Um, well, the, the reluctant missionary. Yes, I was a reluctant missionary. I was well settled here. The kids were at a at a point in their lives where going to a place where they didn't have the resources they need for their. Um, education, extracurricular activities, you know, that kind of made me uncomfortable. And uh, I was willing to go to, as a missionary to an affluent, comfortable place, but <laughs> but the, the Holy Spirit left me alone. I think seeing, realizing I was a stubborn Adventist, he says, okay, I won't work with her. And he began stirring the heart of my husband, who was a new Adventist. And he wanted to go to, as a missionary. And he had a really good job as a, in the healthcare uh, world here in the U.S. And I said, no, 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 we're not doing it. But he had already made up his mind. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I said no right to the, right till the end. So, in fact, he just went ahead and accepted the call hmm. without my consent. Yes, uh. to everyone who's listening, that's sometimes. <laughs> but that's okay. You know, sometimes... When the Holy Spirit impresses on the heart of somebody so, so strongly, um, you got to accept it. So my husband accepting it without my consent, I still resent that a little bit today. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. yes, right, a spouse shouldn't do that. But he was convinced. And then there was a fortune cookie that said I would go to a faraway land. <laughs> and uh, both of that combined, I just couldn't fight it any longer. So I went with... This is no joke. The Holy Spirit used a fortune cookie. Yes, yes. That's so, a desperation that you put yes. the Holy Spirit through. <laughs> <laughs> that afternoon, we were in a hotel in Atlanta after a, uh, attending church service with a compelling message that spoke, should have spoken to me saying, yes, God's telling you go. And I still refused. So in that hotel room, I wake up after my Sabbath nap and my husband was at the computer. I said, Roy, what are you doing? And he said, I accepted the call. I was mad. He, to appease me, he orders Chinese food. I don't say no to Chinese food. So I'm eating in anger by myself in the corner. And then I opened my fortune cookie and there it was. (laughs) So I went, but even after going, I was so mad. Every time I saw something I didn't like. It was in another interview. Somebody said, what was so difficult? I said, Sorry, well, the first thing I could think of is I don't have potato chips and I don't have cream cheese. And it just the little things that I had to a bit do like without. Jonah with the tree. Yes, I was, I, was, I was like that. But 
you know, my faith grew so much during Where those did you six go? years. We, go to, we went to Nepal. And having grown up in India, the, I mean, I know this sounds, doesn't sound very nice, but I just thought a place that's far behind in times and technology and it's less progressive than India is Nepal, 50 years behind. And that's how I always had that mental picture. And when I went there, I found, oh, it looks like that's true, you know. So I had these blinders and refused to see what God could do in a in a. How long did it take place. in that mindset? Oh. What happened? How did the Holy Spirit melt your heart? I was walking one night after um, it was dark, and I used to put wear shoes to because there were always piles of cow dung everywhere. And I thought, well, I should protect myself. So I'd wear shoes. And one night I stepped into a warm pile, <laughs> warm and fresh and smelly. And I was so mad. And I, there was no one. It, my family wasn't there because around my kids, I, I tried to be the good mom. We, we all tried to be better around our kids. So in that darkness of that night, my foot in warm cow dung, I was so mad. I screamed, what am I doing here? Because on top of everything that made me uncomfortable, I had given up a really good job at the GC and had tagged along as the missionary's wife. Mm-hmm. For every missionary wife out there, I'm telling you, that's a really tough place to be because you have very little identity. Mm-hmm. You don't have a job. You go along and you do whatever is left undone or you do what your husband tells you or somebody else tells you. So that was very, very difficult for me to give up a really good job Mm. and so there I was screaming looking up and I looked up and I saw the beautiful beautiful dark Nepali sky with thousands and thousands of stars I'd never seen before it was there's no light pollution there's no light pollution it's just a canopy of beautiful stars and I looked up and I thought there's a world out there, worlds out there, looking at me, acting the fool <laughs> when, my, when I'm called to be a missionary. So I kind of mentally slapped myself and said, make the most of it. And I'm a better person. I'm a stronger Christian, um, a more obedient child of God, because I finally said yes, and I did what I was called for. That is an amazing story, Shovia. What was the hardest thing about living and working in Nepal? Wow. Um, besides the, you know, cream cheese and potato chips, <laughs> that was my personal need. Uh, the hardest thing was we lived during the period of a civil war. Mm. And there was a curfew, I don't know, 80% of the time we were there. And uh, my, my children were, being, uh, were becoming numb to things that should shake a normal human being. Uh, bombs would go off and, uh, and we would instinctively just turn the volume of the TV up because that's just mm. another bomb. Uh, our daughter, to f- uh, a shortcut to her dad's office was um, uh, around the morgue. And in Nepal, mm. Hindus don't confine a dead body in an enclosed building. So although we had a beautiful morgue, the bodies would lie outside of the morgue. <laughs> And, on the on the lawn. And Phil, we should just say you were working at an Adventist hospital in I, Nepal. Exactly. So th- that's why there was a morgue near your house. Yes, I should have explained <laughs> that. 
Yeah. That Just in context, case people were wondering. <laughs> that context is very important. So my daughter would literally jump over the dead bodies as a shortcut mm. to get to dad, daddy's office. And wow. so as a mom, that bothered me, this, this numbing of, of, of our hearts, so to speak. The other thing that was difficult was um, the fear of just how much we could share our faith where it was illegal to proselytize. You could get three years in, in prison. Mm. And we had uh, a pa our pastor's adopted son um, was in prison because they f he had a copy shop, you know, Xerox copy. And in his dustbin, they found uh, a flyer. And that was enough. He got in prison for three years. When he came out, he had scars of electrocution on his back. Oh. And he, he was reduced to skin and bones. So you never knew what could happen when. We would have um, undercover government agents in, the, in, in our sanctuary during worship, and you wouldn't know. So if, if there was a Hindu there coming to experience Christian worship, and this undercover agent was there. That was, that was very dangerous. But we could always spot the undercover agents because, you know, we, we had traditional Adventist worship where you stand up a zillion times, you know, stand for, stand for the um, and, and opening the, song. And the agent didn't know the and choreography. He, never knew. He, was, <laughs> he didn't know when to stand and sit. So that was a clue. We'd always look around. The person who doesn't know when to stand and when to sit <laughs> You know, very strong brand identity. Yes, you know, who's very, in and who's out. Yes. <laughs> so that was difficult. So there hadn't been any baptisms for 15 years when we went there. Mm, goodness, not surprising. 15 years. Yeah. And uh, my husband, Roy, because he was a young Adventist and he, he's a big risk taker, you know, that's his personality. Um, he hadn't heard all these missionary stories of the past, you know, of some of the risks they take. So he was just so filled with this mandate from the Holy Spirit, if you will. Mm -hmm. Share your faith. Be, take a risk. Do what you can. So by the end of the first year, we had six baptisms in a, mm, in a shipping amazing. container in our backyard. And so my, me, being cautious, I said, okay. You want to do this? This is fine. You want to risk risk your life when we have little <laughs> children? Fine. And I started laying on the guilt, hoping that he would listen. But no. I need to meet your husband. At some point, I need to meet him. <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, okay, it's getting, why don't we have it at sundown after it gets dark? He said, oh, no, we can't take pictures then. <laughs> <laughs> That's the point. And then, and then I said, okay, let's have it in the side of the yard. Not, it's not facing the main road. You know, you can't see it from the other side, the fields where the, where the people are in the, in the paddy field working. So we, no one snitches on us. And let's be quiet. He says, no, we need music. So he gets our son and his guitar to play songs. <laughs> it was bright, middle of the day. Songs and hymns, a lot of joy, and nothing happened. Six, six baptisms, and then the next time we had a few more, and this time we, we uh, coordinated a potluck by the river and had it done there because there were far more, more people. But yeah, the church grew. And Is it still the case in Nepal that... Well, now it's, it's like legal. Now it's, it's legal. legal. 
Now okay, it is so legal. It's, so it's a little better, but still frowned upon. So back then, it was possible. It was legal to worship if you were already a Seventh Day Adventist, because you mentioned you had a pastor yes. and a church. The pastor was Indian, yes. right? But you had but a church, yes. so it was legal to, to worship. worship. So they would have probably said they had religious freedom. Yes. But in fact, they didn't because nobody was allowed to share their faith. It was only if they were already an Adventist that they were allowed to worship. Exactly. And to this day, there's not an Adventist school there. Hmm. Not a single school in the whole country. So when we were there, I partnered with uh, Griggs, it was called mm -hmm. Home Study International. Yeah. Yes. And they gave us uh, permission to Xerox all the copyrighted material. Over and over again for it. And we started an underground school. Oh. We did, so that we could teach little kids about Jesus under the pretext of being a daycare. It was open only for um, children of employees. 99% uh -huh. of our, 97% of our employees were Hindus at this Adventist hospital. Mm. And so, but they, they did value ed an education, so we mm -hmm. told them we'd give them an education, but it's only open. So under that pretext, we had a school, we opened a school. It seems there are four things that are very difficult to stop Adventists from doing. Right? One is sharing their faith, mm. because we exist to do that. So it's really difficult to continue being an Adventist and not finding opportunities for it. The second is education. Yes. Stopping Adventists from starting schools, it's an impossible task. The third is caring for other people's healths. Yes. So that's something that we just do in, in anywhere in the world. Eventually that happens. I'm intrigued what your fourth one is. Uh, my fourth one is caring for other people to alleviate the suffering of others. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. It's, 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 you can't contemplate Jesus mm. and especially read Ellen White's description of the ministry of Jesus and not be compelled to look around, notice people that are suffering and to alleviate the suffering of others. Mm. And we see this in all the stories that we're telling. What strikes me is that God brought you to the Abrahamic experience of looking up at the sky. Mm. You know, the, there is a, a little nuance in the text where it seems that Abraham was in his tent when the first part of the dialogue in Genesis 15 happened. When Abraham looks back at God and said, Eliezer, my servant is going to be my heir because right. you gave me no heir. Yeah. And then God says, come out and look at the stars. So it implies that he was inside. Yeah. Yes. And at some point, we're all called to, to stop looking down in our own realities and to look at God's canvas. I love that. You know, so, right? Yeah. That seems, oh, yes, that absolutely. That seems to be exactly your experience. It's like yes. the world is much bigger than my problems, though my problems are very real and, mm. and, and unpleasant. And that, that was a tremendously transformative experience. Is this why you are so passionate about missionaries having missionary experiences? Oh, yes. Uh, I... I want others to feel that experience when you have no control, <laughs> absolutely no control mm. over anything. That is the, the perfect environment for faith to grow. You know, and when we lived in Nepal, everything you can imagine would go wrong. Every day something would go wrong. And I'm the I'll fix it kind of person. I had to just step back and say, I have no control. And, and when you let God come in, you know, so you don't have to go anywhere for that experience, for that experience of faith growth. You know, that kind, you can be a missionary wherever you are. There's so many things right here in my neighborhood I have no control. And in my life, I just need to stop 
And having done that for six years, I want others to feel it. There's nothing like this in this lifetime. <laughs> Absolutely not. You're one of the founders of Vivid Faith. I remember being in meetings with you where we decided the name and we were really trying to, to get this thing you know, from the ground. And we worried about people being able to apply and would we have enough missionaries uh, today? Because the history of the Adventist church is that we've had missionaries that are willing to go Absolutely. and be beaten and bruised and died of diseases. And, and you know, it, it seems that they were willing to pay the cost. Will we still have today people that are willing to do it? And you'll discover that, yes, we have people that are willing to go. How many people do you have in Vivid Faith who said, I will go, sign me up? I literally have goosebumps right now. Every time someone asks me that question, I get goosebumps. Because when I wake up in the morning, there's usually, every day, there's at least 50 new people hmm. who have signed up. An average of 200 right now, it used to be 100 a week now, average of 200 new people a week on Vivid Faith. When the Holy Spirit stirs someone's heart, there is no stopping that movement. Uh, I, my background is marketing. So when I was on the developing team of Vivid Faith, my, my mind was always churning, you know, uh, trying to figure out my marketing strategy to get more end users. But I have discovered that with Vivid Faith, I don't need a marketing strategy. I have not advertised it anywhere. There has been no article in Adventist Review. I haven't been on ANN because I, the really? Holy Spirit. There's no, been no, no. There's, there's been no. The church's communication channels haven't promoted. Uh, it, the only way is when they report something like an annual council, you right. know, as a, the report. But right. no, there has been no promotion, and it is amazing to me. The church's initiative to challenge everyone to see, I will go for the past few years, yes, it's happening. They're all saying it. See, I can see it in the numbers I see every day. When the Holy Spirit stirs, you don't need marketing. We're progressively going toward 10,000 users uh, at some point, hopefully this year. You mentioned there right. are already 6,000. As of this yes. morning, 6,588. 6,588 people, people who've signed up to for serve. mission experiences. Exactly. And just to be clear, that doesn't necessarily mean going as a missionary to a foreign country. It could be a mission project in their own country, potentially, yes. but they're signing up for mission outreach service projects. Yes, because Vivid Faith is created as a tool to allow organizations to recruit not just volunteer missionaries, but they, you could recruit um, full-time workers, contractors, um, uh, freelancers, you know, just all types of personnel needs. Short-term, long-term. Short-term, long-term. We had uh, uh, a Campari, Campari advertise on Vivid Faith a couple of weeks ago for uh, volunteers to recruit for nine days, you know, to nurture young people during the Campari. So it could be anything uh, as long as it's a it's focused on missions. It's a mission-focused opportunity. Could be a doctor in Adventist uh, Washington Adventist Hospital right around the corner, uh, a nurse, you know, because that's a mission-focused service. So yes, six thousand five hundred eighty-eight people ready to serve wherever they see a need, whether it's in their local church, uh, at their conference level, outside the country, just anywhere. But you have a problem. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. What is your deep yearning at the moment? Ah. Oh. I need organizations to find creative ways and advertise 
needs because for the 6,588 people, I have only about 500 or so vacancies, needs out there. So it's so disproportionate. So, so your problem isn't marketing to people that want to, to be part of mission. Your problem is that there aren't enough Adventist entities thinking through how they can open opportunities for people to be involved in mission. Yes. That's exactly what happens in a local church, Philby. I think that's the first time we've had a reflection in the global church to what happens. I'll, I'll tell you what happens. So 11 years as a local church pastor. Most sermons call people for some kind of action. Mm. Sometimes it's transformation of their own lives. Right. Sometimes it's devotional focus. But a lot of the times <clears throat> is you need to be involved in mission. Right? I will go kind of sermons. Mm -hmm. Except that if the church, if the pastor, the elders, the board don't think strategically about how they will create opportunities for people to serve, two things will happen in my experience. One, you set up committees that have eight hours of meetings for every one hour of service. <laughs> Nobody wants to be part of that in the local church. It, it You're just coming up with that off the top of your head, Sam, or is that a real experience, eight to one? I, it's an instinct, but I think if you measured it, yes. it would be close, close to the reality. Yeah. Um, you, you organize a food drive, right? You're, you're there for two hours, but you've had six months of meetings mm. for those two hours of, of ministry. So I don't think it's far off. You know, I think it's, right. it's pretty right. close. Right. And people feel both guilt and shame for not being active in mission. So you've given them a way to sign up to, be, to do something. But our leaders in the local church, as well as the conferences, unions, ministries, supporting ministries as well, and so on, we need to be very intentional about creating those opportunities. So in the local church, the solution for me was, and I had a few principles. Principle number one, I'm not going to ask somebody to do something for more than seven weeks at a time. So the commitment isn't, give me your life for the next two years. It's seven weeks. This is what I need you to do. And it was very clear. So limited time. The second part is, I will absorb the complexity of the administration of that activity. So let the board who's there and, and let others set up the administrative issues. Don't involve direct volunteers mm -hmm. to do that. For someone who's going to distribute the food, you don't need them to join you for six months of meetings. You just need a small group that will pull together the administrative issues related mm -hmm. to that. Okay. And the training, so short-term, no meetings, and the training happens as much as possible on the spot. Um, so you don't need much training to know how to welcome people somewhere. Or, you know, so the training is not extensive either. The training is appropriate to the, to the job. That's mm -hmm. it. And what happened is I never had a no I would come to the, because if you need something done, talk to the busy people. <laughs> people that have plenty of time. Isn't that your yeah, experience? Yeah, they'll make people more that time. have plenty of time to do everything. You ask them, <laughs> nothing happens, right? So if you need something done, ask the very busy people. And I would come to them as their pastor and I would say, I need your help. Um, I need you for seven weeks. This is what you're going to do. Your training will be on the day, just arrived 15 minutes before. Can I count on you for those seven weeks? And I've never had a no. The answer was yes from everybody, including people that traveled all the time. And it doesn't, you know, they committed and they delivered. Those are the people that delivered. But it took a lot of energy between the elders and the board and myself to fix this problem of intentionally creating opportunities for mission. So there were, you, in the local church, there were, you found there were more people willing to serve than there were opportunities for them to serve in. In the same kind yeah. of ratio that, that yeah. uh, Philvia okay. is describing, you know, one to 20. 
is is what she is describing. And it's also, uh, you know, we we have this um, traditional mindset of certain certain types of things that volunteers do. Okay. They they go like a student missionary. You see, mostly teachers, young students leave their college to go teach. But there are other ways to do, you know, teaching or a Bible worker. Be a teacher, be a Bible worker. Most of opportunities are that way. We need to be more creative in how we open up opportunities to serve, you know. For example, maybe you could partner with the, the local health and human services. So if you're doing a food bank, uh, a, kitchen, a soup kitchen in your church, it happens once a month. If you partner with a local health and human service department, uh, you, could, you could expand that. Mm. You see, so we kind of stay in our silo and we often serve ourselves. A an Adventist volunteer teacher traveling thousands of miles to teach in an Adventist school where Adventist children are. That's tradition, I, nothing I, wrong with that. But we could expand that. I'm trying to understand what you're saying because if I understand, if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, this is, this is a game changer. So if you have a local church pastor, let's say in yeah, a city, let's and, and let's imagine you've got a local church pastor who's listening or watching this pod, mm -hmm. this podcast now, and is thinking, that's great. Is there some what, some way I can be involved? So they would go to the to the NGOs, to the non-profit mm -hmm. organizations, or another church, or, say the Baptist church. Sure, and anybody. They, yeah. they visit those places that are um, alleviating the suffering of others in their community, let's mm -hmm. say. And they say, what's your greatest need in terms of volunteers? Well, I always need this, this, and this kind of volunteer. And he creates, or she, creates a survey of what's going on in their town. And then they come to Vivid Faith. Am I understanding you correctly? Mm -hmm. That you would list all of those needs. Yeah. Because at the moment, you have more people willing to serve than those yeah. that are serving. And therefore, we are providing the human resources necessary, and therefore we are mingling with people. You see where I'm going exactly. with this? And we are now alleviating the suffering of others in that community. There is more opportunity to share your faith when you're working side by side with those who think differently, who believe differently, than you are when you're just do handing out something. Mm. And mm. so that if is a good local very church, That's a good reminder. That's a good you reminder. Know? So when a local church partners with other entities in its community and it becomes, and through that partnership, it becomes the driver of that community, in that community to serve. So if somebody has a need, they'll say, oh, let's contact that Adventist church. They know they have a movement of people who like to serve. Yeah. So, so yeah. Go ahead. So, of course, in, in Vivid Faith, the recruiting entity has to be Adventist-owned, Adventist-controlled church entity. So it's the local church. But the local church uh, can recruit for its own projects, and the projects could be, you know, partnership with the community, and that's what we want. We're always looking for ways for the local church to be more integrated in the in their community. That's fantastic. So we've got the local pastor who's watching this podcast or listening to this podcast and saying, I'd like to be involved. Can he or she just put, go to you, email you at Vivid Faith and say, I've got a soup kitchen and I'd like more volunteers? Yes, they could email so it me. Doesn't so it doesn't have to be a, a, a call to another country or another part. It can just be, 
I, here I am in this city. Is there anyone in this city who'd be willing, or within an hour's drive, say, or whatever, who'd mm -hmm. be willing to help me? Yeah, so the, what happens is that entity, when they express their need to use Vivid Faith as a recruiting tool, that entity enters into a memorandum of understanding with the general conference, so everybody's clear on the expectations of the other, and we, we build customized forms and processes for them, and then we give them access to the tool that's Vivid Faith, that's their own, to start recruiting on their own, and, and it's as simple as that. Uh, I, uh, an example is my home church uh, during the pandemic uh, and we they got access to Vivid Faith and one of the things, they have a center of influence in Baltimore City and they started um, providing courses uh, in their center of influence and as well as online. For example, um, iPhone usage, iPhone use, iPhone 101 or something like that for seniors. Teach uh, grandpas and grandmas good. how to use the iPhone, very good. how to take a picture, how to FaceTime with your grandchildren, yes. and and so they that was a and they recruited instructors uh, through Vivid Faith or teach ESL to your community. English is a second English language. As a, English yeah. as a second language, and what if what if so if they advertise a position like uh, we need an English as a second language teacher and say a non-Adventist applies, because Vivid Faith is a public website, say a non-Adventist mm -hmm. applies. So imagine a ESL class in a Seventh-day Adventist church taught by a non-Adventist as well as an Adventist teacher. So they partner together and they teach. Those, there, there's going to be a relationship formed there mm. between the non-Adventist teacher and the Adventist teacher. Uh, just so imagine. It's, it's an interface with the world. With the world and a... Uh, you know, we open it up. We 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 are not afraid of the risks of maybe polluting our mind with other people's thoughts because we're strong in our faith. When you're strong in your faith, and the Holy Spirit says, work side by side, work with others who are different from you, work for others who are different from you, serve others who are different from you. Um, miracles can happen. Right, but still, most people are probably going to. Most of your recruits are going to be seventh. Ah, absolutely, yep. most of them. Sylvia, we've talked a lot about you know, what Vivid Faith is doing. How does Vivid Faith work? What makes it different to recruiting systems in the past? Has the church ever had an online portal for recruiting before? What makes Vivid Faith unusual? Um, for the past 30, 40 years, we, the church has had um, Adventist Volunteer Services, which was a recruiting tool online that catered to uh, primarily uh, student missionaries. They were, of course, it wasn't limited by age, but primarily used by student missionaries. Um, and they, it was, everybody would go fill one application form, choose three top places they wanted to serve, and, and they would be placed. What's different with Vivid Faith is, first of all, is that there are multiple applications formed. Everybody who's recruiting can customize and ask the right questions to pre-vet hmm. the applicants they receive. Uh -huh. And the processes are going to be Customize. Plus, we're not limited to recruiting only volunteers who are Adventists. We could be Adventist employees. So if you need, oh, David, I remember when you were looking for uh, a full-time employee yes. at the SDR, we advertised that position. You did, you did, and we yes. got applicants as a result. Yes. So similarly, whether it's full-time, part-time, contract, freelance, so it opens it up to more flexibility as far as processing, and more opportunities for uh, different types of personnel.
Beautiful. What are some stories that you've got? Mm, the best story, my favorite story, happened during the pandemic. And it was shared at the general conference session, but worth repeating. Uh, during the pandemic, uh, we were supposed to have launched by then, but didn't make sense. So it was, mm. it was still active, but uh, used by very few organizations. Um, one girl, she found a remote teaching uh, opportunity in was Argentina. She, she, was she was in, in Argentina. Argentina. Okay, right. She was in Argentina and she found this remote teaching opportunity to a group of people who met in Uzbekistan. So this is Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan. Well, it's one of the Stan countries. One of the Stan countries. It's a central, so it's a country in Central, central Asia, Asia, formerly part of the Soviet Union. That's correct. Mm. And so the South Union Mission, which is the office that governs that area. For the church. For the church. They realized that, oh, this is the pandemic, and now, you know, we are not going to be able to have people travel here, so why not take this online? So they contacted Vivid Faith and just advertise it again. No, no, we just put it online, didn't do anything. And within a few weeks, I think it was less than three weeks, uh, the girl in Argentina, Argentina applies and starts teaching, was accepted, starts teaching. Online. Online to these students using Zoom or whatever. And then by the time the travel restrictions were lifted, she was ready to go. Hmm. Uh, but the thing is, in Uzbekistan, till that time, there had been no Adventist volunteer ever. And when she landed there, she became the first Adventist missionary, volunteer missionary in Uzbekistan. That's amazing. Ever. That's amazing. Well, already with relationships from already the, with from relationships, the and they right. discovered that that, is beautiful. that that this is great, you know, because the cultural differences are there, you know, mm -hmm. but building relationships online through a remote class, you know, online mm. remote teaching that had never been done before. And so that that is one story that I'm that I really love. It's not it, it I love the story in the context of this podcast because we've been talking about innovation for mission right mm. at the beginning. And we had as a church to figure out how we're gonna deploy missionaries in the physical world. Yes how they're going to get on ships and go here yeah. and there. Yes. But we are now in this, in this moment of pioneering where we're figuring out how we are going to send hybrid missionaries, how we're going to use the digital environments that have been created, this new digital landscape. It's brand new. It does not respect boundaries at all. It works on language, not boundaries. But it will always lead to a hybrid system. So this mm -hmm. is a pioneering story of of using this new technology this new world of digital to connect to the very old world uh, that is very you know the, the physical face-to-face -face world i love it i have another example of this uh, please this, share it this transition to the digital world hope channel international hmm. they their needs are very niche they need a research analyst they need a captioner, you know, and 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 uh, they could very skills based, very skills based, and they uh -huh. couldn't find these in in our Adventist colleges even to volunteer, and they were willing to pay, and so they said, let's try it with faith, and they put up I think eight different applications, uh, assignments, sorry, eight different vacancies up there, and for each assignment they created a unique application asking specific questions, like if it's a, 
uh, offline caption, okay, give us a, links to the captioning you've done, you mm -hmm. know, things like that. So it was very neat. And so it was already filtered by the time they, it came to them. Over a period of three months, they have, um, I wish I had that number with me, certainly in the dozens of recruits through Vivid Faith from all over the world, from Ghana to Mexico to um, Spain to Thailand, and, and people with the exact skills they need, and who have started as volunteers and have now transitioned as contract workers with uh -huh. them, uh, uh, an, an employee base that they would never have gotten in the past. I talked to them last week. They're very happy. Yeah, they, they this are is a, very happy. And it's amazing. And the same thing with AWR Center for Digital Evangelism in the Philippines. Um, the responses they've got and the, the, the diversity in culture and, and learning and experience has been amazing. Praise God. Philvia, where does Vivid Faith want to be in five years' time? Hmm. You know, when I was a little girl and growing up, you know, we'd always hear new acronyms in the church and all of that. And I remember <laughs> we always have a lot, we we have have a lot, lot. of acronyms. We're, we're a factory of acronyms. For I remember when I first years. heard about ADRA, I had no I, I truly thought maybe there was a new animal that I hadn't heard of. When I saw that it was an acronym, when I heard it, I didn't know. Then when I saw it, I under I saw, oh, acronym. So I had to go figure out what it was, you know. So it was so new. Ask any ad uh, Adventist in the early days of ADRA what it is. Nobody would mm -hmm. tell you, right? But now, ADRA is a household Adventist brand. Yes. There's no Adventist, child or adult, who doesn't know what ADRA is. That's right. a good point. I never thought of that. It's an yeah. Adventist household yeah, yeah, yeah. brand. It's synonymous with humanitarian mm. service. Mm. Anybody, even a child knows. So, ADRA, yes, they send people to school. They dig wells. Everybody knows that. So, for me, I want Vivid Faith to also be an Adventist household brand. Mm. So that, and I don't want to wait for 30 years. I, I want to <laughs> see seven, five to seven years from now, I want Vivid Faith to be known. People hear Vivid Faith and sh they should know, oh, that's a movement of Adventist people committed to service. Vivid Faith should be synonymous with an Adventist that's lifestyle of service. People who are uh, live purpose life, joy-filled life, where every day, they use their everyday abilities, opportunities to share their faith, through acts of kindness and compassion. Use every day, whether it's in the office, or on the train, or in the mission field, but their life itself is so mission-focused. People hear Vivid Faith, ah, they are the Adventists who so, live their faith through service. In branding, we studied positioning, which is mm -hmm. the position in some way. Some people think that brand brand positioning is the position the brand will fit in the market. <laughs> brand positioning is the positioning in someone's mind mm -hmm. that you will fill. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's very clear and, and it's a beautiful goal, two of you, because you want to fit the position in their minds that relates to mission. So we need a missionary. The answer is vivid faith. Yes. I want to, to spend some time dedicated or involved in mission. The answer is vivid faith. faith. Yeah. That's a very clear brand goal of positioning. Well done. All right. Thanks again for joining us in this episode of Mission 150. Thank you, Fulvia, for being with us. Glad uh, to be here. Today. 
As you will have noticed, today we've started to move from the history of mission into the present day of mission, and from now on we're going to be having a mix of both the stories of history and of the present day. So please keep watching on Adventist Review TV, on the Seventh-day Adventist Church's YouTube channel, or listening on any of your podcast platforms. Your favorite podcast platform, we're on all of the podcast platforms. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. If you want to know more about Adventist missionary work and what missionaries do today, go to AdventistMission.org. That's AdventistMission.org. And if you want to find mission opportunities today, as we've been discussing, go to VividFaith.com. That's VividFaith.com. We'll be back next week with more on the inspiring history of Adventist mission around the world.